We pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to draw near to us this morning through your word. Bless us as we study your life here on earth among us. Fill us with strength and confidence in the forgiveness that we've received from you. And fill us with motivation for living lives that honor you here on this earth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, uh, if Jesus' whole life was made into a movie, it would be a pretty boring movie so far. I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement. The, the beginning of Jesus' life was not boring. It, it was a little bit more exciting. So, you know, an, first an angel appears to this woman named Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby and the baby's going to be the son of God. Then... You know, Mary and Joseph have this emergency, dangerous birth in a stable because they couldn't find any room in the inn. And then angels appear to shepherds in the fields and tell them the Savior of the world has just been born. Go and find him. He's lying in a manger. And they find him and they worship him. Then a star in the sky appears to the wise men in the east and they're led to travel all the way to Bethlehem where they find young Jesus and worship him and bring him gifts fit for a king. And speaking of kings, then evil King Herod puts out an edict that all baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem must be killed. He's trying to eliminate all political rivals. But warned by an angel, Mary and Joseph and little Jesus travel all the way to Egypt to escape. So, you know, the first three to four years of Jesus' life were pretty action-packed. They were pretty exciting. But after that, after that, King Herod died very shortly after they went to Egypt. And then Mary and Joseph took Jesus up north to their little town of Nazareth. And for the next eight years, not much interesting happened. And the reason for that was because in the little town of Nazareth, not that much interesting ever happened. Now I know that when you read your Bible, and you read names like Nazareth and Galilee, these are just words, right? Like we don't live in Israel 2,000 years ago. But to people who did, it was shocking and it was amazing that Jesus would ever have come from a place like Nazareth in Galilee. And let me explain to you why. Um, I learned some of this this week as I'm reading commentaries on this text. So at Jesus' time in the Holy Land, uh, there was a huge divide between north and south. So here's a map of the entire Holy Land. I don't know how well you can really see this if you're watching online, but you know, there's the north and there's the south. So let's start with the south. Uh, in the south was this place called Judea. And Judea was the center of intellectual and religious culture. This is where the temple was. And this is where the priests were and where many of the rabbis were and the teachers of the law from distinguished Jewish families tracing their lineage all the way back to Moses or all the way back to Abraham. And this is where like these academics, these religious elite would maybe spend all day long discussing the finer points of Old Testament scripture or perhaps more likely discussing the correct interpretation of all the extra laws and traditions that they had added on to the Old Testament scripture. But it's all, the, all day, all the time, intense discussions of how best to live a pious Jewish life that gets you close to God. And there were various schools of thought on the topic. So the South was the land of academia, deep, intense theological debates. But Jesus didn't grow up in the South. He grew up 
in the north where things were a little bit different up there. People talked a little different. There's a northern Galilean accent. Uh, life moved a little bit more slowly. Uh, the kingdom after Herod had been split up into different sections, and so the north called Galilee had a whole different ruler than down in the south, and it had a whole different economy. So if you're picturing the south, like all of these intense leaders in the temple with all their robes on, having these discussions and debates, you know, the north was the land of, of green fields and sprawling hillsides and the beautiful blue sea of Galilee. People farmed and they fished, and some of them made a really prosperous living doing so. They were also Jewish. They were also religious. They also believed in the coming Messiah. But it was more like they would do their morning devotions and then they had to go do their chores. <laughs> so they just didn't have time for these intense, competitive theological debates that were going on in the south down in Jerusalem. So that's overgeneralizing, but that's the basic summary. And as you can guess then, Judeans from the south, like people down here in Jerusalem, they really looked down on these backwoods Galileans from the north. They kind of thought of them as a bunch of uneducated rednecks. Really, they did. Like, you're a Galilean. Um, so it was a funny thing. And as you can imagine then, when people, they're all waiting for the promised savior, and they've been waiting for the promised Savior for thousands of years. They know the time is coming soon. And as they're getting ready for, like, when is the Savior going to be born? Everybody's expecting him to be born in the south. The place of the temple and the academia and the priests and kind of the intellectual center. Nobody expects him to come from this tiny little farming village in Galilee. A village so insignificant that when someone found out Jesus was from Nazareth, maybe you remember that their response was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Well, something very good came from Nazareth. Because after being born in the south, down in the town of David, near Jerusalem, the town of Bethlehem, and after that flight to Egypt, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, up in the farmland. And apparently it was a very quiet and unremarkable childhood. If Jesus' whole life was a movie with the exception of the very beginning of it, it would have been pretty boring so far. Quiet country life with not a lot going on. But now in our sermon text today, at the end of Luke chapter 2, we get an exciting plot twist. Jesus and his family and his relatives and their whole village, they're going to make this you know, once-a-year pilgrimage down to the south for the big Passover festival. We talked about it with the kids a little bit. This trip was 120 miles in each direction. It would take them about two weeks to get there and two weeks to come back. It's a combination of a camping trip and a family reunion and Christmas all rolled into one. You walk 10 or 12 miles a day, you camp by the side of the road, you keep on going. Finally, you get to Jerusalem, massive worship festival with more than 2 million Jews from all over the world. Incredible. You sacrifice your Passover lamb, you get to see the temple. Then you pack it back up and, and take this two-week trip back home. So it's a month off of school. I mean, it's this incredible holiday. You have to think. There's, there's no debate about this. This was the highlight of the year for a kid from the little town of Nazareth. So Jesus does this trip at age 12, and now as his family is starting the journey back from Jerusalem, it's at this time that Jesus slips away. Now, if Hollywood 
is making a movie out of Jesus' life. Can't you imagine how they would treat this plot twist? Like after his boring rural life in the country, now 12-year-old Jesus, he's almost a teenager, right? 12-year-old Jesus has now gotten to see the big city. He's now gotten a little taste of freedom. Can't you picture him and a couple of other you know, youths from his village and they get out of the temple and start going back and, and then they sneak away. Maybe they sneak back to Jerusalem. Or maybe can't you imagine them all like sitting behind a haystack in a field that they snuck off to and they're sort of giggling at their newfound freedom. Maybe they're passing around a wineskin that they snagged from mom and dad and they're just kind of in this, this preteen rebellion. And, and as you view this scene of Jesus finally running away and cutting loose with his friends, it almost helps you to relate to Jesus a little bit more because he's been so perfect his whole life and of course he's going to be our perfect savior and die on the cross. Don't you think maybe by this point in his life, Jesus is ready to just test out the world a little bit? I mean, he's living here in the human world and doesn't he need to push the boundaries a little and maybe have his moment of, of teenage rebellion and then he, then he kind of recommits back to his mission? I mean, that would be an awesome scene in a Hollywood movie of Jesus' life. But it's not what happened. Here's what actually happened. Luke tells us, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, so apparently he's crashing somewhere, they found him in the temple courts. Um, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everybody who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So as it turns out, Jesus has done the opposite of sneak off and rebel. Instead, what he's doing is he's taking full advantage of his time down in the south, the center, the intellectual center, the theological center. While he's down there, he's taking full advantage and he just has to stop by the temple one more time. And there, someone presumably gives him a spot to crash at night, and then all day long he's listening to these theological debates and these discussions of the elders and the teachers. And, and as he does so, he, he's listening to them and he's talking to them. And perhaps he is subtly nudging them a little bit on their understanding of various Old Testament truths. And everybody who's there is just blown out of their minds. Who is this country kid who's 12 years old, and how does he know so much about the Bible? So, as it turns out, this was not teenage rebellion at all. But it felt like rebellion to Mary. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. We've been worried sick. And Jesus responded, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And Jesus was not rebelling. Instead, he's perfectly dialed in with the will of his heavenly father. And you have to wonder, as Jesus sat there and talked and dialogued with these religious experts, you have to wonder exactly what was going on in his 12-year-old mind. Surely he noticed how easily the Bible was set aside in favor of the traditions of the elders, these extra laws that they had added. And surely he noticed how much time and focus there was on living a good Jewish life and being good enough for God and, and how little focus there was on the Savior that God sent to make us holy and do it all for us. Surely he noticed the, 
theological disconnect. And probably some of these priests that Jesus is engaging with on this day, they're probably some of the opponents he's going to have when he starts his public ministry 18 years later. But his parents, of course, recognized none of this at the time. Luke's gospel says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So what conclusions can we draw about Jesus' childhood here? First, he was always perfectly obedient to the will of his heavenly father, no sinful rebellion. And secondly, he was always perfectly obedient to the earthly parents that God had placed in authority over him. So no earthly rebellion either. Rebellion was not part of Jesus' picture at all. And in doing this and living like this, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the words of Isaiah the prophet, which we read in our first reading today. In these words, we hear the voice of the promised Savior speaking about what he's going to do hundreds of years ahead of time. And here's what he says. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. Jesus woke up every morning of his life ready to listen and learn. And Jesus laid down to sleep every night of his life, having accomplished another day of perfect obedience. How do our lives look in comparison? To a certain extent, it probably just depends on our personality, I think, right? So some people are natural rule followers, while other people are naturally very resistant to authority. Um, Some people are very coachable. Other people really prefer to figure things out for themselves. Some people start with the directions. Other people wait until they're in desperate need to look at the directions. So our personalities are, are all different, but when you really get down to it, we all are rebellious in our own ways. So think about this and just, you know, speed walk through your life. When we're toddlers, we refuse to do what we're told simply because we didn't come up with the idea. I'm speaking from experience as a former toddler and as a parent of toddlers. Uh, and then when we're in school, you know, we resent this system of authority that's over us, and so we try to skirt the system by refusing to do it and by being lazy and not you know, cutting class, not doing our homework, or maybe we're tempted to skirt the system by cheating in some way, but we resent this system that's on us. And then when it comes to social things, um, we resent the morality that's on us and the things that we're supposed to do. And so this is classic teen rebellion, right? That we will do the things that our friends think are cool. We will do the things that make us popular instead of doing the things that we know to be right. Teenage rebellion, sure. But when we're adults, our rebellion doesn't really change. It just becomes much more sophisticated. So maybe we resent the authority that our boss has over us. And so we grumble at work. Uh, We resist the authority that our government has over us, so we just naturally have to grumble when we pay our taxes. Things like this. But most of all, we resent the authority that is represented by God's word. Right? Where God speaks in this book, and he says, here's what you're supposed to do, here's what you're not supposed to do, here's what's right, and here is what's wrong. 
And we resent that. So when God's word disagrees with something that we want to do, we rebel against it by dismissing that part of it as outdated or irrelevant or, I don't know, it's unclear. When it comes down to it, we all have different personalities, but we all are rebellious in our own way. We resent the authorities God has placed over us in this life, and ultimately we want to be our own authority. We want to make our own rules. Where does that come from? Well, in point of fact, it comes from the devil. Before there were human beings and before there was a physical universe, there were spiritual beings and there was a spiritual universe. And in that time, there was an evil angel who rebelled. He wanted to do things his own way. He wanted to throw off God's rule, which he resented, and he wanted to take over rule of a universe for himself. He failed, and he was cast out of heaven and all of his evil angels with him. But what he did next is he came down to earth and pulled human beings into his rebellion. He came to a woman named Eve in the Garden of Eden who's looking at a tree which God had told her not to eat from. And he told her, you're not going to surely die if you eat that fruit. He introduced the idea that God was not trustworthy. He said, if you eat from that fruit, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And with those words, he successfully tempted and pulled Adam and Eve into his rebellion, the rebellion of throwing off God's authority and trying to take it on themselves, trying to be their own God and make their own rules. And in the eating of that fruit, they did. And that rebellious nature then was passed down to their children and their children and all the way down to you and me today. But it was not passed down to Jesus. And why not? Well, Jesus was a real human being just like one of us, but he did not have a rebellious, sinful nature because he hadn't come from this earth. Jesus was God walking and living among us, and as he did, free from that sinful nature, Jesus was living the life of perfect obedience that God calls all his people to live. Again, a description of Jesus' life 700 years ahead of time through Isaiah the prophet the sovereign Lord wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. This is what Jesus did every single second of his life. And he did it for us. And it counts for us. So you think about this. Every stage of life, Jesus' early years of perfect listening replaces our stubborn disobedience as toddlers. Jesus' faithful and diligent school years replace our years of laziness or cheating or complaining. Jesus' honest and respectful working years, and he's probably working up to age 30 in his dad's carpenter shop, Jesus' honest, faithful working years replace our years of slacking and bad attitudes in the workplace and complaining about our boss. Most of all, Jesus' perfect focus on his Heavenly Father's will replaces all the times that we've ignored what God says and we've tried to become our own authority so we can do what we want. And even when his Heavenly Father's will was to send him to the cross, 
to die there to pay the price for your sins and my sins and all the sins of the entire world, even then Jesus did not flinch. But what did he say? Father, not my will, but yours be done. And obediently he went to that cross and he suffered and he paid the full price for all of our sinful rebellions. All of this Jesus did for us. All of this counts for us. And in Jesus, we are forgiven for everything. And you look at your own life and your worst, most frustrating, humiliating years and times of rebellion and the things that you wish that you could forget, God has forgotten them. They're gone, covered by the grace of Jesus. If Jesus' whole life was made into a movie, the movie would start getting boring again after this scene. We don't know anything about Jesus' teenage years. We don't know anything about Jesus' 20s. In fact, the Gospels give us no details whatsoever about anything that happened to Jesus from the time he was 12 in the temple all the way until the time his ministry began at age 30. But although we may not know the details, thanks to the rest of the Bible, like our friend the prophet Isaiah, we do know what Jesus was doing during all of that time. He was waking up every day and choosing perfect obedience in our place. And the end result is that as far as God is concerned, as far as when God looks at your life, these words apply to you. Through faith in Jesus, you can honestly say, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. Not once. Not ever. This is who you are in Christ. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your replacement and your perfect Savior. Amen.